Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Pastak. In the 1860s, Chinese immigrants built vast stretches of railroad in the American West. But two decades later, they found themselves the targets of the first federal law restricting immigration by race and nationality, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which remained on the books until 1943. One of writer Ava Chin's forefathers worked on the railroad, and much of her family suffered from the consequences of the Exclusion Act. The violence it enabled pushed both sides of her family east to New York City. Chin, raised by her mother's side of the family in Queens, had grown up without meeting her father or his family, until years of research led her to a building on Mott Street in the heart of Chinatown, where she soon learned both sides of her family spent decades living, squabbling, and loving. Chin's new book, Mott Street, is the result of painstaking research across continents and oceans into oral and written records to trace her family's journey through five generations of Chinese-American history. Ava Chin is the author of Eating Wildly, Foraging for Life, Love, and the Perfect Meal, which won the MFK Fisher Book Award in 2015, and teaches writing at the City University of New York. Thanks for talking to me, Ava. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Stephanie. So you're actually joining us from the building on Mott Street itself. Can you describe the facade for us, the view onto the street from where you're sitting? Sure. So um, it is a six-story red brick building right in the heart of Chinatown. It sits at the intersection of Mott and Pell Streets. Um, and this traditionally was where Chinatown uh, first formed in the 19th century. And every local knows um, that Mott Street means Chinatown. This building wasn't always part of your family lore growing up. When did you first discover that this was where so many generations of your family had rubbed elbows? Um, it happens once I met my father. So I'm a fifth generation Chinese American. I grew up raised by a single mother, but estranged from my dad's side of the family. And for many, many, many years, I yearned to know who he was um, and to know who this family was uh, that I was estranged from. And when I, when I finally met my father on that day, um, we were walking down the street and he pointed out the building to me and he's like, see that, that window over there, that's where your great grandparents lived. And then over there, that's where your grandparents, my parents lived and that's where I was born. My mind was kind of blown at that moment because this is a building that I had walked past many, many times before with the family who raised me. And I had no idea that the family that I did not know was actually living in that building and had lived there uh, since the building was built in 1915. And then I started talking and asking questions of the family who raised me. And I was in the middle of a conversation with my maternal grandmother, who was essentially like my mother figure. And she admitted to me that she also was born in that building. And that was the moment where my mind was really blown because I, before that, had thought about, you know, my families as being completely separate. I've never seen them in the same room together. By the time I was born, they really just hated each other. So the fact that 
they were actually neighbors. And then I later found out they were upstairs, downstairs neighbors from each other. Um, that was a revelation. So the, so the building really is, is kind of like a place of refuge, but it was also kind of like a womb for both sides of my family. That's so interesting. Did you get what you wanted from that meeting with your father? Did you get that relationship with him and the family? Um, I got a certain kind of relationship. It certainly was not exactly what I wanted, um, but it it set me on a path towards understanding the larger legacy of who I come from, the people that I come from, and 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 you know, our relationship with um, being in this country for so many generations. Yeah, I mean, I think your family history is super interesting, because I kept turning the page and being like, oh, wow, there really is like almost every facet of the Chinese American story is contained within these like, three overarching families that you describe. Um, Chinese exclusion is the the big bad thundercloud that like hovers over this entire history. And one of the points you make really early on is that it is so difficult to rely on the written record in looking at this history just because so much of it, one, was destroyed, or two, was papered over, which we'll talk about. Um, But simultaneously, too, the oral history can be kind of tough to navigate, too, given, you know, the relations between the two sides of your family. Um, you said they hated each other by the end. One calls, you know, one ancestor a loan shark. The other one's like, no, 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 no. He was a businessman. Right. Can you talk about your process for navigating that oral record and also the written record? Yeah. You know, it was very, um, it felt sometimes very perilous because the written record, um, the English language written records um, we're filled with the biases of the day, right? I have to go back to, you know, 19th century newspapers, um, and 19th century, early 20th century historical records from the National Archives offices. And these were records that had the interrogations and the interviews by our earliest iteration of immigration officers. Um, mostly, well, they were all men who were scrutinizing Chinese, um, and, re- and really just trying to keep people out. All of the, the prejudices and the biases of the time period were really reflected, um, in the written record. Um, so that was really thorny and it was like a real exercise in reading against the grain, right? I had to kind of balance it out with archives that I was able to uncover when, um, I was a full writer in, 2017. Um, so I was able to do research in China at that time. Um, and so, so I had to balance that out with that. And then books written by, you know, contemporary historians and the oral history, right? Um, that you, you touched upon and the oral stories, you know, it's so funny because we tend to think of the oral stories as, as being more suspect, right? Because, you know, they're passed down from generation to generation. They change with the speakers. Who really knows if, you know, like the dates are often a little off because people's memories are a little funny. But when it comes to Chinese exclusion, that 61 year period from 1882 to 1943, it's actually the oral stories and the family stories that hold the keys to the truth. 
whereas the the written historical record the the written documents the governmental documents are the ones that are filled with lies and fabrications um because the laws were so restrictive that people needed to make up stories about who they were in order to get in i thought that was so interesting when you first found out about the paper names in your family. Can you talk a little bit about that, about why would your grandfather have a paper father? Sure. So um, because Chinese exclusion was so restrictive, the laws were so restrictive, um, you know, at one point, uh, only students and diplomats and some businessmen could come in. Um, and when you think about the late 19th century, early part of the 20th century, how many people are actually students and diplomats, right? Or, or business owners. And even the business owners, I had a family member who, um, they had the family business on Mott Street, but two of the older brothers, they occupied the visas for that period. And so when my great grandfather tried to come over, um, in the 1890s, the government wouldn't let him come in legally, right? Um, so he had to come in other ways. But but getting back to the whole issue of paper names. Um, so what happened is when the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906 happened, the fires wiped out the city hall records. And all of those records, it was like the birth certificates of, you know, any San Franciscan who was born um, in the immediate area. When those went up in flame, there was this huge crack, a big fissure in the Great Wall of Chinese exclusion that Chinese people were then able to um, take advantage of. Um, and people started to say, well, I'm actually... Um, I was born here, or I'm the son of a citizen who was a merchant, and and this is my story. And what happened is Chinese Americans who were living here, um, every time they left the country and then they came back, they would say, "Oh, you know, actually, I went to China, back to China, and I got married, and I had four sons." And they would create these slots that would enable other people. Um, to come in and use them. So the idea of a paper father was somebody who's, um, I, you know, that was, that was your father in paper name only, right? Um, and so that's how a, a great majority of Chinese at the time period were able to come in. Um, even after Chinese exclusion was repealed, by the way, immigration limits for Chinese were only, the quota was only 105 per year. So it was so stingy that um, folks still continue to come in after 1943 under the paper system because the laws were so restrictive. Um, I did, when I was working on this section of the book, I did have a bit of consternation about writing about this because I thought, oh, you know, is this going to like reinforce stereotypes um, of how how people outside the community view Chinese people as being suspicious, you know, circumventing the laws. Um, but then I listened to part of my grandfather's oral history. Um, and one of the things he said was, you know, if the government hadn't made the laws the way that they did, then people wouldn't have had to lie in order to get in. So, you know, it does go back to this discriminatory legislation that was imposed in the 19th century. 
Totally. Yeah. And if you think about too, like all of the, the physical labor that Chinese immigrants put into the country that just aren't found on paper anyway, sometimes not even in, in history books. It kind of balances out, I think, in the karmic scales. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and as you know, because you read the book, I am a proud descendant of a Chinese railroad worker. And um, it always mystified me um, that my family members who helped build the apparatus that unified the country after the Civil War would have to deal with, you know, these iterations of like, you don't belong here and we don't want you here. Um, when they, you know, made this great contribution that so many Americans benefited from. And, and we still continue to benefit from today. You know, we went out, my family and I went out to the West Coast to look at different sections of where Chinese workers like my great great grandfather had helped, you know, lay the track and, and, and carve out places where the railroad was going to go through, including the summit tunnels in the mighty Sierra Nevada in Northern California. And the trains are still running on some of those tracks today. So, so it, it's, I don't, I, I feel this deep rooted connection with the railroad and, and the work and the labors that my ancestors did. It's really poetic too, because all of your ancestors basically traveled over that same railroad to get from the West Coast to New York City. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that migration, about how all three far-flung branches of your family made their way to Mott Street? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a really interesting story um, that that I didn't really learn until much later, until as an adult, right? So I knew that um, the Wong side of my family were the railroad laborers. And then, you know, my grandparents told me that that railroad worker ended up staying in the country for another couple of decades and lived in Boise, Idaho, when the state population of Idaho was almost 30% Chinese when my great great grandfather was living there. So, um, one of the things my grandparents didn't tell me about was that, um, a couple of years after the completion of the railroad, the country entered this huge economic depression. Um, and there was a lot of economic strife. And coupled with that was a lot of seething resentment against Chinese people who were occupying a lot of um, jobs in laboring positions, factories, um, logging, that other Americans thought, oh, these are my jobs, right? You shouldn't be in that job. And so this anti-Chinese sentiment really came to a head um, in the 1880s and the 1890s. And at that point, my family members had to make a decision. Do we stay or do we go? And while other Chinese were being pushed out of their homes, um, my family members like decided to flee. Um, and most of them ended up jumping on the railroad, doing a reverse migration across country and landing in the same community on Mott Street. So that's how both sides ended up coming out here. I mean, they were certainly entrepreneurial, but I think it takes a certain amount of moxie and guts to kind of make this decision not to return back home or um, stay in San Francisco, but to say, you know what, I'm going to go to New York. 
they still believed in the possibilities of America, right? Um, and, and it is interesting. It's, it's sort of like contrary to what we think about, um, even myself, you know, like as an East Coast person, you know, it was always like, go West, young man, right? It's like, you find your, for your fortune, you know, out in California. But, um, for my family members, no, it was like, go East. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were a lot of surprises hidden in the records. You talk about once the families are settled, on Mott Street in Chinatown, there's all of this like entrepreneurship, one of the first grocery stores, and a really like strong community, strong civic association that even bands together with all of the other immigrants and communities on the Lower East Side with this fundraiser for the victims of this pogrom in Kishinev, Russia, which I was like, wait, what? Hold on. Yes, yes. <laughs> Where did this come from? Yes. Can you talk about that and what was so surprising about it for you? So um, I remember when I first learned about it. Um, I was surprised. So it was called like the shot that was heard round the world. And it was really shocking for a lot of people because it was the first programs of the 20th century. And it also coincided with photography uh, being used in newspapers. And so people saw these photographs of victims. Some of them were children. And, and it really, I think, touched the hearts um, of a lot of people, you know, even here in America. So my uncle Dekfoon, um, had lived out, uh, in California when the pushing out of Chinese Americans occurred in the 1880s. And I think that, um, by the time he makes it safely out to New York, he is firmly established as, uh, as a, as a businessman who's considered very progressive. Um, he bands together with these other progressive Chinese Americans. Um, and they decide when they hear, um, about what's happened in Kishinev, they decide that they're going to lend a hand to their Jewish neighbors in the Lower East Side. Um, and, and, and then do these fundraisers. Okay. So I should say, um, because of Chinese exclusion, it's not, it's, Chinese exclusion is important, not just because people, um, could not come over legally in great numbers, but it also prevented a pathway towards our citizenship. So for all of the decades that my uncle was living here, he could not naturalize. And if you can't naturalize, you can't vote. Uh, if you can't vote, politicians don't pay attention to you. But back then, in the early part of the 20th century, Tammany Hall was still the dominant player uh, in New York City politics. And one of the things that they really liked were contributions. And so some of the things that my um, uncle and his friends were doing were courting these politicians, inviting them to dinners, banquets in Chinatown. Um, some of them, some of the politicians were Jewish. When I looked at the menus... Um, of the banquet dinners. I wouldn't say they were kosher, but they, um, you know, had no trafe, right? No pork, no, no shellfish. Um, so, so they were, you know, had, they had actually already been courting a number of these politicians. Um, and so they were very familiar with these folks in Tammany Hall. And basically what happened is when the Kishinev pogroms occurred, they decided that they needed to do this fundraiser. Um, because I think for my uncle, it was actually really personal. He had 
lived out the most extreme anti-Chinese violence. Uh, he safely makes it to New York, and and I think he really actually wanted to give back. So um, these fundraisers were really quite unique and important. Um, and they did it not just once, but they did it twice because the pogroms continued, of course, as we know. Um, and they did another one like two years later in 1905. Yeah, it is surprising, I think, and runs contrary to what we think of, you know, of like very insular communities, which wasn't the case at all. I'm interested if you can talk a little bit about what the women of the family were doing. You know, these two branches, the Doshims and the Chins, both had these coveted front-facing apartments. But there were some mixed marriages in the family, too, which were, I think, another big surprise. Right. So Dek Foon, uh, who had been married once before, but his wife died in China, um, he meets at church our Aunt Elva, who was a white woman born in New Jersey and the daughter of a Civil War veteran. And they fall in love and get married. And this was this was particularly scandalous or would have been scandalous during this time period um, because this is a time period in which interracial marriages in a large part in many, many states across the country are illegal, right? Um, we're lucky that in New York and Connecticut where they got married, such marriages uh, were not illegal. But certainly societally, many American families would have disowned their daughters for marrying outside of the race. So it made, I think, my uncle and my aunt's marriage quite exceptional. Um, there are other things that are quite exceptional about their marriage, which, you know, the reader will have to uh, read the book in order to find out. Um, but, but one of the things that I was really surprised about with Aunt Elva, who was a really big, important matriarch in my grandmother's family was that a couple of years after she and Uncle Deck get married, the U.S. government revoked her citizenship because this was a period in time in which the government believed that a woman's citizenship should change to reflect that of her husband's. So if you marry a German, you become German, like a German citizen in the eyes of the U.S. government. So a couple of years after marrying Uncle Deck, Aunt Elva, who was the daughter of a Civil War veteran, becomes, in the eyes of the law, a Chinese. And as far as I know, even years after they uh, repealed that law, um, the first time they repealed the law, she would not have been able to get her citizenship back from for a variety of different reasons um because there were all these like clauses right um and i don't know that she indeed ever really got her citizenship back it's wild too because it's not like she would have been a chinese citizen she was really just stateless for a time yeah um I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your family's move away from Mott Street. You know, what does it feel like to be mm. back in this place after having left it? Yeah. So it's funny because <clears throat> this is a, this is a, a pattern that um, I think many ethnic families uh, experience, right? You land in New York or wherever you land in the United States and you kind of live in this community 
um, that is, you know, people, you know, you're connected by common language and cultural ties. Um, but, you know, for us, for Chinese people, it was also a refuge um, from dealing with the Chinese Exclusion Act laws, right? For an immigrant family, like you, you land in the community. And then once people start making money, people start thinking, oh, you know, why are, why are we here? You know, we should move out to someplace better in the suburbs, right? And so at certain, a certain point, my family moves out to Queens, right? Where there's way more space, but it's more isolated. Um, and when I was growing up, I really was like, despite the fact that Queens is very multicultural today, the area that I grew up in, I was really the only Chinese American girl in my immediate neighborhood. And I felt really lonely. Um, but it was when my family on weekends would go back to Chinatown and we would go like to go eat food and go food shopping and for my family members to see, you know, their extended family and friends. Chinatown always felt like home, despite the fact that um, my language skills are really limited, that, you know, that I very much, um, you know, am a Chinese American, you know, uh, you know, and then being fifth generation, you know, no one in my generation, uh, is really fluent or literate, um, in Chinese. So, so despite all of that, coming back to Chinatown as a kid always felt like home. And then when I connected with my family members again and, um, you know, found that people were still here in the building, um, and was able to interview folks who were, had been born here, whose children were born here. That was something just incredibly special to me. You know, somebody who was, who was disconnected from her family for, for so many decades, right? I didn't meet my dad until I was 27 on, on like on the brink of turning 28. To be able to know that my family had its long roots in in New York City, which is you know I'm like born and bred New Yorker, right? And that and that that it they were all here in the city um, was really just nothing short of a miracle. Um, it was so lovely to know that I didn't have to travel out of the country to feel connected to my family. All I have to do is travel down to Chinatown and go to Mont Street. We have links in the show notes to Ava Chin's new book, Mott Street, a Chinese-American family's story of exclusion and homecoming, as well as some of her essays. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Mm-hmm.